Well, good morning, church. If you're in kindergarten through third grade, you're dismissed to go to children's church at this time. Our text this morning is in Exodus 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's some black ones in the pew rack in front of you, and you can uh, find today's text on page 60 in those. Parents, if your kids just went out, they'll be delivered right back to you at the end of the service, uh, right where you're sitting. So thanks to our volunteers who are ministering to our kids even now. Well, I am thrilled to be back in Exodus. I'm thankful for Jerry setting the stage uh, for us last week. He had a big task. Right, he preached, uh, he uh, preached a review sermon that essentially covered 15 chapters and this book that took us parts of three different years to study. And so he handled the task well, and I trust that God used his work in that passage, or those passages rather, to bless you. I know I was blessed this week as I re-listened to Jerry's sermon. We, uh, we finished our time in Exodus last year at the high point so far in the story for Israel. They were free. They'd not only been delivered from slavery in Egypt, but God wiped out the Egyptian army that was pursuing them in the wilderness. And we left Israel celebrating there on the beach by the Red Sea. And today we find them hurting. And their situation is going to make us wrestle with something that I'm convinced we all deal with at one time or another. What do you do when you find yourself disappointed in God? In fact, the title of today's sermon, if you picked up the sermon notes in the back, and by the way, some of you are confused, it's my fault, I put the wrong date on the, ser- on the sermon notes, so you know how sometimes you like, if uh, those of you that still write checks, I know some of you do because they get behind you in line at Pringers, um, uh, you, you write the wrong date, you write the wrong year on the check sometimes, uh, well if you notice at the top of the sermon notes today, it says 1-23-22, so I don't know what I was doing, but you're better off than I am at this point in the year. Uh, What do we do when we find ourselves disappointed in God? Let me be clear, God never fails. God does always provide, and we trust that as God's people. But if we're honest with ourselves, and if we're honest with each other, I think we'd all admit to moments where we've doubted, moments where we've struggled. We feel disappointed, even though we trust somewhere down deep in our souls that God has got this, God's really in control, We'd have those quiet moments. Some of us would have those loud public moments where we've doubted, where we've struggled. This text shows us two responses to that very situation. You can pick them out as we read together. Exodus chapter 15, beginning in verse 22. This is God's word. Then Moses led Israel on from the Red Sea, and they went out to the wilderness of Shur. They journeyed for three days in the wilderness without finding water. They came to Merah, but they could not drink the water at Merah because it was bitter. That is why it was named Merah. The people grumbled to Moses, what are we going to drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he threw it into the water, the water became drinkable. The Lord made a statute and ordinance for them at Merah, and he tested them there and said, if you will carefully obey the Lord your God, Do what is right in his sight. Pay attention to his commands and keep all his statutes. I will not inflict any illnesses on you that I inflicted on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord 
who heals you. And they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs and seventy date palms, and they camped there by the water. Would you pray with me over the reading of God's Word? Father, uh, we don't come just reading this text this morning and, and hoping to find some kind of some kind of encouragement from it in a in an empty sense and a and a token sense, God. But we come before you this morning, looking at your word and recognizing that these words are the very words of the Creator of the universe Himself. And we've been called to submit to the truth that is contained in these words. And so, God, we pray that you would give us spiritual eyes to see that truth, and that through your Holy Spirit we'd be able to apply that truth as well. God, make us doers of your word and not hearers only, we pray. And God, we, we ask that as we study your word, that your, that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts to encourage us where we need to be encouraged, to convict us where we need to be convicted, to, to move us toward repentance of the sins that we need to repent from. Some of us here, Father, perhaps have never repented of our sins and trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. So, Father, if that's Uh, someone in this room, someone listening online, wherever it is that we are hearing your word today, God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work on our hearts. Gift us the faith to believe that Jesus Christ truly is the Savior. And and with with everything that we have, with our whole heart, God, trust in Him for salvation. God, for those of us that belong to Christ who are here, we pray that your word would cause us remember who you really are, the God who heals, the God who directs our steps, the God who is sovereign, the God who is in control, the God who has chosen to rescue his people from before the foundation of the world we read in scripture. So God, we, we ask that you would remind us today particularly if we are in a moment of struggle, a moment of disappointment, a moment of darkness, a moment of doubt, a moment of crisis. God, through our fear, through our anxiety, through our hurt, through things that we have maybe struggled with for years, decades even, God, we pray that we would see through those things today that You hold the world with a steady hand. Father God, just as you led us into this place, you will lead us back out again. And so, Father, we pray we would yield to your Spirit today. Work in our hearts, we ask, in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, if Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year, and it is a wonderful time, there's a song about that somewhere, then we run the risk of January the 8th being the least wonderful time of the year. There's not a song about that. We're past the turn of the calendar. We're past all the newness that that brings. We're past all the family gatherings. In fact, the bills for December are starting to come due. By the way, financial peace tonight, 6 p.m. downstairs. Maybe you had big plans for 2023. You were going to start a new habit or break a bad one. Maybe you'd resolve to read the Bible every day or be a better spouse or start a diet or something like that. And ten days ago, you were looking forward to all those things. Now you're back at work. And the kids are back in school. And it's cold. And it starts getting dark at noon. 
And frankly, you were just hoping for something better by this point, weren't you? Disappointment, discouragement, frustration, fear, doubt. Those are very all real emotions that all human beings feel, and they're brought into view in today's text. And, and let's be clear, those are real emotions that God's people feel too. You see, Israel goes from the height of celebration to the pit of despair in just a few verses. The, the celebration in Exodus 15:1 should have carried on. God saved us. We've been rescued. None of us have ever experienced freedom before. For 400 years, Israel had been enslaved in Egypt, and now they're free. And it was God who worked out all of that. And now God has promised to deliver us to a land that's going to be our very own. No one alive had ever had their own land before. And this God, who had been true to every promise that he had made to this point in the text, came through over and over again. These people experienced the plagues. They saw with their own eyes the power of this mighty God. They watched the most powerful army on the planet get washed away in the Red Sea. This should have been a parade into the wilderness. And instead it turns into a funeral procession. You see, the miracle of Exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea, the miracle was really no water, right? The Israelites walked across the, the Red Sea on dry ground. God pushed back the water. The miracle was no water. The ground dried up. Israel moved forward. Now what's the problem? No water. They knew God controlled the water. He showed them in Egypt. He turned the Nile to blood. And so their disappointment here wasn't in their lack of directions. We don't see grumbling in this text because the GPS took them in the wrong direction. We've all grumbled about that. No, their disappointment is with God himself. And Israel had very real reasons to be disappointed, to grumble in verse 24. That's the word in the text. They grumbled. They'd been without water for three days. Now, most of us have never known thirst in the truest sense. We've known some discomfort. There is never as thirsty a human as a seven-year-old at bedtime, right? We've been there, but that's not truly thirst. Thirst as the first stage of dehydration, according to the scientists, doesn't kick in until you've lost 2% of your body weight due to using up stored water faster than you put it back in your body. So most of the time when we say we're thirsty, we're not experiencing thirst like that. But remember, Israel wasn't just sitting around. I mean, many of us, right, carry water or... This is water, uh, by the way. It's filtered through coffee grounds, but it's water. Um, you'll get that later, don't worry. Um, so you'll be fine. So if you didn't get it, you need to... Anyway. Um, some of us carry water with us all the time. We're never more than arm's reach away from a water bottle uh, or we work near a water fountain or whatever. So, so we, we might not understand thirst. They were not just sitting around. They were traveling traveling in the wild for three days. They likely had some stored water along with them, but this was a very serious, this was a life or death problem. They were on the verge of a medical crisis, especially for the oldest and the youngest among them. That's the setting. This new life of freedom that God had won for Israel was not working out at all how Israel expected. 
I think this is a, a very timely passage for us. Even at church, Israel thought about freedom for generations, and now that it's here, now that they've got it, it's not what they expected. How many of us bank on that next milestone? Maybe it was the turning of the calendar from 2022 to 2023 for you, but maybe it was something bigger. You've, you've worked your tail off for that new job, that better job, only to find out that it didn't satisfy you the way that you thought it would. You thought only, if you could only finish school or move into your own place or get the attention of this guy or of that girl, that things would be better. You saw marriage as a way to solve your problems. But when life doesn't break the way that you think it's going to, how do you respond? You see, this passage, one of the things that it does is reminds us that God is just as much God when Israel walked on the dry ground across the Red Sea as he was when they grumbled in the dry desert. And church, we're going to experience both of those moments if we walk with Christ. We're going to join Israel in worship, celebrating on the beach as God has delivered us from our enemies. And we're going to panic right alongside Israel when life doesn't go the way that we planned and we're worried about whether or not we're going to make it. And we see two responses to that moment in this passage. Israel grumbles to Moses, yet Moses cries out, God. Here's what Israel does. Okay, Moses, this trip was your idea. You led us out of Egypt. You led us into the wilderness. Now we're out of water. What are you going to do about it? Since Moses was serving as God's appointed leader at this time in Israel, it wasn't bad that they brought their problem to him. They probably took their problem to the right place. The problem was in their attitude. See, we know from how Israel has already behaved in this Exodus account and the things that we're going to see in the next several texts that we study uh, again and again down the road. We'll just call it what it is. They were whining. They were so quick to forget that God is in control. The, the psalmist picks up on it later, this, this forgetfulness, and he laments it uh, over in Psalm 106. Our ancestors in Egypt did not grasp the significance of your wondrous works. Or remember your many acts of faithful love. Instead, they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. They, I think the reason he says it twice here is they, they rebelled by the sea. You know, the Red Sea, the one that God drowned the Egyptian army in, that one. That's how forgetful that they were, that they are almost within eyesight of the Red Sea, and here they are grumbling against God. God, we know you saved us, but that was three days ago. What have you done for me lately, God? We're thirsty. And let's not bash them too much because it's going to sting when we start looking in the mirror later. It would have been really hard to trust God's faithfulness in this moment, especially when they come tomorrow. They come to a spring on the third day of this wilderness journey as their water reserves are running low. Somebody out front would have spotted an oasis. Hey, there's excitement. Look, water off in the distance. We've got what we need. And, and God really did provide. And they arrive. And whoever that guy is that goes first, or the, the girl or the kid maybe, that gets to that water first, they drink the water. And something ain't right. We don't know what that means other than it was, it says it's bitter in the text. That's all we, it says. We just know it was undrinkable. The thing that you hope is your salvation, your ticket to a new life, has let you down. 
Well, their response to that reveals their hearts. Just three days ago, they shouted, Our God is glorious. I will praise Him. I will exalt God. Three days, not three weeks, three days later, they're grumbling. It's the first time that word is used in the Old Testament, but it won't be the last. Israel became a people familiar with griping, complaining, murmuring, criticizing, nitpicking, and they, they, they got to all those things 72 hours after the spiritual high point of their lives. But that outward behavior, that lack of gratitude, that panic, that lack of faith, that fear, whatever it is, it's always the outgrowth of some root sin in the heart. The grumbling was the fruit, but the root were hearts that lacked the faith that God would take care of them. They didn't trust God's faithfulness. I mean, one moment they're saying, our God is the true God. When they fled to Mara, God had not failed. They were still very much within the plan of God. Romans 8.28 applies to this situation just as much as it did to the, to the rest of the Exodus. Paul writes in Romans 8, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. And it's in that purpose of God, that unfailing providence of God, that you're often led to a place of bitterness. You understand that so much of our lives mirror the lives of the Israelites here. Don't get the idea that if you become a Christian, that if you come through the Red Sea, so to speak, if you repent of your sins, place your trust in Jesus, that your problems are all behind you. It's simply not how it works. And if you get that sort of idea in your mind, because we, we may not phrase it that way. Many of us would, would admit to ourselves in that deep, quiet moment, right, that if we think if only we're obedient, if only we do things God's way, if only that we try to be good, God is going to see that and He's going to make our lives easy for us very mild form of the prosperity gospel that many of us fall into thinking that if I just do good, God will give me good. We only need to look so far as a man named Jesus Christ of Nazareth to realize that if you do good, the world will often respond with the opposite. I see, Israel was at Marah because God led them to Marah. And God makes that clear as he answers Moses' cry. He demonstrates, uh, uh, Moses demonstrates a different response. He doesn't grumble. He cries out. When everyone else is looking down at the water, down at the problem, Moses is looking up to heaven. He cries out to God instead of grumbling out to any old one who would listen. And what does God do? He provides. Because Moses prays instead of grumbles, we get three truths that remind us that God is in control even when we are disappointed, even when we be so bold as to say that we're disappointed in Him. We get God's provision, God's correction, and God's deliverance revealed in the text. And remember that He's revealing these things to Moses. Moses is human, right? This is Moses the murderer. Okay, he is far from perfect. And I think we can identify both with Moses and the Israelites here in that grumbling his become such a regular part of our cultural routine that I fear we take our complaining about the stuff around us and we translate it over to God sometimes without even realizing it. Because complaining is a profession in our culture. There's people who have built fortunes for themselves, going on TV and the radio and the internet, complaining about other people. Grumbling is a way of life. We grumble about politics. We grumble about entertainment. We grumble about sports. 
Whether you wear orange or black and yellow, or some of you that are on the prayer list wear blue, you know. We grumble about coaches, we grumble about teachers, and, and you don't have to turn on the TV or open Facebook to find it, right? You can get it around the table at JJ's or McDonald's. You can get it around the lunch table at the high school. You can find it at work or in the stands at a ball game, or let's even turn the spotlight inside, right? You can probably find it in your Sunday school class or cast in a Baptist business meeting. We are a people, not just us in this room, but I think Americans, we are a people acquainted well with dissatisfaction. And we air that dissatisfaction very quickly. But there's a point I don't want us to miss even before we get into the big picture meat of the passage. We don't have to do it. We don't have to grumble. We don't have to complain. This is, uh, Moses, this is human Moses here, sinful Moses. And instead of complaining, he goes right to God. Moses, whose sin kept him from going to the promised land, doesn't grumble. He cries out to God. So in this moment, he certainly gets it right. And God reveals first his provision to us. Verse 25 says, So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And when he threw it into the water, the water became drinkable. God answers Moses' cry. God is always going to provide. He led them to bitter water, not to show them bitter water, but to show them the bitterness of their hearts. And he did so with a plan to give them exactly what they needed. To show them that there was no reason for their grumbling in the first place. That tree didn't likely spring up that day. No, God knew that that tree was there. That tree, was plan uh, that tree grew for this purpose. The solution to their problem was already right there before the water, before they grumbled, before they got upset. God had already provided the solution. All Moses had to do was ask. And knowing that truth, knowing that he needed to ask, that didn't make Moses any less thirsty. I mean, this was an extreme hardship endured by everybody in Israel. And God put this hardship on Israel to demonstrate his mercy and grace. We're told over and over again in Scripture how God will provide, that God will give us the grace to meet whatever struggle he puts in front of us. But many of us have to learn that truth by experience. Some of us are hands-on learners when it comes to life and when it comes to holiness. God wants us to have a deep dependence on His ability to provide. The taste of bitter water made fresh, that became the taste of faith for Israel. So one sign of growing spiritual maturity, one sign that we are becoming more like Christ, is to trust that God will provide even when we don't see how. Perhaps when it's even impossible to see how. Live in the city of Centralia, you may be aware that our slaker malfunctioned this week. I had no idea slaker was a word until Thursday. I still don't know what it does. But I understand that it helps soften our water. Now, I, I guess I'm told our water is a little harder than normal. I felt it this morning. It felt pretty soft to me. I don't know. I thought the only hard water was ice, but I'm not a scientist myself. And I'm sure they're hard at work to fix the issue, but I doubt that, and Aaron's here, Aaron's our water foreman, don't come to him with your problems, I'm just, I ask, he's smarter than me when it comes to water, so I'll ask him a question. Aaron, have you tried throwing a tree into the slaker? Well, there you, I mean, he may have hit it with a piece of wood, I don't know about that, but he's yet to try throwing a tree into it. If you threw a tree into it, do you think that would help? No! That's absurd, right? 
Why did this tree fix the problem? I don't, it's, it's funny. Scholar scientists, they're funny people to me because they went back to this area of the world and they've studied tree and they've found every shrub and every bush they can. And maybe one of these has some, some water filtration powers that we're not aware of. And so they've tried all these things. And guess what they found? Throwing a tree in water doesn't purify water. No, this was God providing. This was the solution that God gave Moses, and it makes no sense at all, and I firmly believe that's the point. God specifically calls Moses to do this because it's absurd. It's absurd that a tree fixes the water. It's absurd that Moses goes along with it. He didn't question God. He didn't pause. He was like, God, isn't there some sort of like, I don't know, shouldn't we use charcoal or some sort of, you know, purification, something or other? Can we boil it off, God? No, Moses just does it at this point in his life. I love this about Moses. Moses, who argued with God over and over again at the burning bush, he goes, God says, there's another bush over there. Hey, the bush thing worked the first time, let's try it again. Takes the tree, throws it in the water, the water is fine. You see, Moses just did what God said because he trusted that God would provide. In fact, Moses already had everything that he needs. Listen to what Peter writes, 2 Peter verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power, his being God, his divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. You see, God has already provided all that we need to live life and to live it in a godly manner, but most of us have to learn that over and over until we finally get to the point where we no longer question if God is going to provide, but only wonder how. How will God take care of us? And we'll wait in faith until He does. When you're disappointed, when you're in doubt, when you're frustrated to the point of grumbling against God, repent of that and remember that God provides. And in this provision, God also often corrects. Look at the last half of verse 25. We read, The Lord made a statute and ordinance for them at Marah, and He tested them there. He said, If you will carefully obey the Lord your God, all His statutes, I will not inflict any illness on you that I inflicted on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Israel's command was to obey the Word of God. God's law once uh, was to be the absolute standard for their conduct. And, and some of you Bible scholars may say, well, wait a minute, we're not to the law yet. That comes later, right? We're not to the Ten Commandments. There is no law. And in one regard, you're right. You're right. The law hadn't been written down yet. But the written law simply revealed God's will, God's truth, God's standard to people in a clearer way, but God's law has always been. God's law has always been true. It has always been the standard. It's part of His being. It doesn't change. So even before the Israelites reached Mount Sinai to receive the law, God required them to live for His glory, to obey His statutes, to live life His way. They were to listen to what He said and do what he commanded. But there's a very important line we need to draw here, church, if we're going to understand this section of Exodus. You see, the first part of Exodus is all about salvation, being saved from slavery. It mirrors our salvation from death and slavery to sin. But where we are now, this almost to the back half of Exodus, is all about sanctification. Sanctification just means becoming like Jesus. 
It is everything that happens to you from the moment that you trust Christ as your Savior until you die. It's all the joys, all the sorrows, all the victories, all the losses, all those things are a part of your sanctification. They all work together to shape you to be like Jesus. Sanctification means learning to be what you already are. I've used a military analogy before, but let me try a different one. Many of you are parents, and if you believe the Bible, you recognize that from the moment of conception, you're a parent. About 40 weeks into being a parent, many of you are blessed enough to meet your child. The baby is born, and at that point, the vast majority of us have no idea what we're doing. We're horribly unqualified, yet they still let us leave the hospital with the baby. Am I just speaking for myself here, or no, just me, okay. And after a few days, you wonder if you left the instruction book there. See, you are a parent. And you learn what that means as you go. You know more about it after two years. And then you know a little more about it after five years. Your skill set grows. It takes different skills to parent a six-year-old than a 16-year-old. You'll be better at some things than others. But you, and you never stop being a parent no matter how old your child is. You spend the rest of your life learning to be a parent. That's a lot like sanctification. You get saved and you spend the rest of your life learning to be saved, learning what it means to belong to Christ, learning what it means to be a child of God. And I point that out because following God's law wasn't a part of Israel's salvation. It was a part of their sanctification. They were already saved. God had delivered them out of Egypt. The Egyptian army was gone. Egypt couldn't come for Israel if they wanted to. But now it was time for their sanctification. So God gave them his law. He didn't say, do this and I will save you. First, he saved them and then he said, now here are some things I want you to do. This is how you are to live. If God had done it the other way around, then salvation would come by works. But as it is, salvation comes by grace through faith. And genuine saving faith is always followed by good works. Always followed by following the will of God. God wants us to do more than simply believe what he has done in an intellectual sense. He wants us to obey what he has commanded with our whole life. And God gave Israel these instructions to help them live for his glory. Once we've been saved from our sin, the way that we experience the fullness of God is simply, as the old hymn says, by trusting and obeying. Those are the two things at issue here, right? They grumble because they don't trust, and God's command is to obey. Obedience was the test of their faith. This reveals a lot about Israel's relationship with God. Whether they obeyed or not, there would be consequences, right? Because they are in a covenant relationship, and that's how a covenant works. It contains promises and warnings with blessings for obedience and, and consequences for disobedience. God says, if you obey... You're not going to fall into the sins that Israel did. But if you don't, I will correct you. See, our need for God to provide is the testing of this faith. And a lot of times we fail that test. We see God's standard. We see God's law. We see what we're supposed to do. And in a moment of doubt, in a moment of struggle, in a moment of rebellion, we go the opposite way. We fail the test. That doesn't mean we're not saved or God doesn't love us. It means we don't love Him enough and we need to grow more, we need to trust Him more, and we need to be reminded that's why we so desperately need Jesus. He passed the test. 
Israel was thirsty after three days. Listen to what Jesus went through, Matthew 4. It says, after he'd fasted 40 days and 40 nights, in the understatement of all Scripture, it says, he was hungry. If I preach for about four more minutes, some of you are going to be starving, right? Maybe I'm just speaking for my children, I don't know. Then the tempter approached him, Matthew 4, 3, and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. The temptation was to get food in his own way, not trusting his Father to provide, but Jesus passed the test. He said, it is, not, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, Jesus didn't complain about what the Father failed to provide for him. He trusted his Father to sustain him. Church, there are incredible blessings that come with learning to trust God. There wasn't just a command here. There was a promise. See, if the people obeyed, he would not only spare them from the plagues, he would also heal their diseases. God revealed himself uh, for the first time by the name God who heals. It's the first time we see that in Scripture. He's the God who makes you whole. It doesn't mean that he heals every disease that he, we have, but it means truly that God makes us whole. He makes us right. God shows them just a glimpse of his healing power here by taking the water that was sick, the water that was broken, the water that was spoiled, and healing it. And he doesn't just heal, he delivers. Look at verse 27. And they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 date palms, and they camped there by the water. Some people want to make significance out of those numbers, and maybe they are significant. The big, biggest significance of those numbers is there's a lot at Elam. There's plenty of water. There's plenty to eat. Exodus 15 ends in paradise. They actually went deeper into the wilderness to get there, but when they did, they found exactly what they need. When God provides, He provides for everything. It would have been enough for God to give them Mara, this spring that had been fixed. He gave them what they needed to survive, but ordinarily God gives enough for us to thrive. He gave them Elam. He gave them a place where they had all that they needed. He satisfied Israel's thirst at Mara. He showered his people with blessing at Elam. In Philippians 4.19, Paul writes, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. See, more than just material needs, God has promised and provided all of our deepest spiritual needs. The need in Exodus 15 was water. Israel was thirsty. They needed a drink. Listen to what Jesus said a few hundred years later. John 7, the end of verse 37. It says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. See, Jesus doesn't just save us. Church. He does that. And if you're here today and you've never experienced the salvation Jesus offers, I'll be honest, I have no idea how you deal with the frustration and disappointment of this world. You're stronger than me because I know I couldn't do it without Jesus. I can't argue enough to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation today because when Jesus says, the one who believes in me will have streams of water that flow from deep within him, what he means is you'll have the very Spirit of God himself working in and through you. That's the source of our sanctification, church. We can be thirsty, we can be frustrated, we can be struggling, we can be hurt, and we can do all these things while, just like Moses did, turning to God in submission. Trusting Him to provide instead of grumbling like the Israelites did. Make no mistake, um, 
Sorry, don't mistake God directing you to bitter waters, to bitter times in life. Don't mistake that as punishment. That's certainly possible. If you have unrepentant sin in your life, God might very well be using the circumstances around you to try to snap you out of it and draw him back to you. He does that often with Israel in the Old Testament, but it's just as likely that God has directed you to a moment of bitterness in your life to sanctify you, to shape you, to be more like Jesus, to cause you to rely more fully on Him. Don't let bitter water reveal a bitter heart. Don't be discouraged because you view God as a God who discourages. Instead, be strengthened by the God who heals. Let's pray. Lord, when we as all of us have, God, we, we face moments in life where we can readily identify with Israel in this passage. God, we, are, we find ourselves in unfamiliar surroundings. We, we find ourselves scared. We find ourselves in need and not knowing where the need is going to be provided from. God, it might be a physical health thing, it might be a a financial thing, it might be a relationship thing, it might be a a trauma thing from our past, it might be be anxiety, it might be one of a number of things. And God, those circumstances can cause our hearts to be bitter. Lord, help us today to recognize that it's not the circumstances that are causing it, God. It's the bitterness that's already in our heart that is being revealed by those circumstances. And Lord, we pray that you would take it away. God, take the bitterness from our heart and replace it with contentment, replace it with peace, replace it with joy, because your Holy Spirit can do that. Lord, let love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness, and self-control flow out of us, even more so when circumstances around us would lend themselves to creating bitterness. God, help us to be honest enough with you to, to confess and to repent that you know, we've allowed ourselves to become bitter at times grumbling against you, grumbling against the people around us. Lord, we pray that we would honor your word that tells us to let no unwholesome talk come out of our mouth. Only that which is good for lifting up, good for encouraging, good for rebuking. God, let that be what characterizes us as your people. Let us reflect Moses in that when when we encounter a circumstance, a situation where, God, we are stuck, we are in fear, we are hurting, we don't know where water is coming from that we need for life. We don't know where where the the need that looms so large in front of us, we don't know where it's going to be fulfilled from, God. Our hearts hurt. We are panicked. We may even be facing certain death, as the Israelites eventually would have been here, God. When we find ourselves in those situations, let us not look down at the problem, but up to you, trusting that you're the God who provides, that you're the God who heals, and you're the God who will one day deliver us 
to the thing that we need most. And that's your fullness. God, you tell us in your word that you're preparing a place for your children. God, that all those who belong to you have already had their biggest need met. God, our eternal destiny has been secured. Our sin has been forgiven. We are no longer under your wrath. Instead, we are called your children. And Lord, you have redeemed our lives. And and let us be a people who look forward with excitement to the day that we are united with you for eternity. And all these struggles, all these things that cause bitterness, God, they pass away forever. Let us long for that day, we pray. And give us the grace to get there. Help us to bear one another's burdens. With grace, with encouragement, we pray in your Son's name. And all God's people say, in just a moment, all those of us who are able will stand together again and sing. We're going to sing a song called By His Wounds. And, and it is by the wounds of Jesus Christ that all the things we're talking about this morning become true for us. Israel was rescued from slavery through the Red Sea behind Moses. We are rescued from our sins by the wounds of Jesus, by the resurrection of Christ. And if you're able, would you stand with us as we sing?